Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. The New Testament reading is from Romans 12, chapters 1 to 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ, we, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your word. And we pray that this morning you would help us to hear it well so that we might know you better and make you better known in this world. Bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds that they'd be acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I, I, uh, I don't generally like kind of jumping around on the different lectionary texts, those sort of set readings that we have for the Christian year. I, I like to uh, uh, kind of stick with one. I've been preaching through Matthew for the last few weeks, and I, I, I like that continuity. And the plan is next week to be, to be back in Matthew's Gospel. However, next week, as we've already noted, is somehow uh, September. <laughs> and September always brings with it a kind of, uh, kind of excitement for me, right? It seems like a new beginning, a time of possibility. Things are starting up, a new school year, different rhythms for many of us than we've had through the summer months. And so in honor of the new school year, starting next week, we're going to be back in the Gospel of Matthew, but we're going to, we're going to have a kind of series between now and Advent uh, focused on, on getting back to basics, on the basics of our faith, right? Because no matter how long we've been doing this, if this is your, your first day as a Christian or you've been doing it for decades, for your whole life, uh, we never really get much beyond the basics. 
And I think it's like that with most things, right? Like consider an elite athlete. Uh, if you watch an elite athlete, you'll know that, that mostly what they do is practice the basics, right? Show up early to a professional ball game and you see the fielders out there uh, catching routine ground balls. Uh, go to a golf tournament like the one up the road today and you'll see that the pros spend just about as much time at the driving range as they, and on the putting green as they do uh, playing any given round. You know, NBA players still uh, shoot three free throws every day. <laughs> if you don't like sports, change the analogy, right? Knitters can't forget about basic stitches. Painters can't disregard color theory. Great runners pay more attention to stretching and form than those of us who hurt ourselves every time we think we can run a couple miles. Musicians never outgrow scales. Anyone who's excellent at something knows the importance of the basics. Right, which can be challenging in a world that encourages instant gratification. Right, a lot of days, the basics just feels like work. <laughs> right, and e even if we allow for a bit of natural talent, the difference between those who are elite at something and the rest of us is that they do the work. Right, if, if I took all of the time that I had spent watching sports on TV and playing sports video games and instead actually played a sport, I might be an athlete now <laughs> instead of this current situation. <laughs> But the fact is that we're generally trained not to do things we don't want to do, right? Which includes the drudgery of, of practice, of going back to basics, of, of trying again and again, because practice doesn't make perfect, it only makes progress. I've often come back to the G.K. Chesterton quote. I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Now, the basics of our faith, the ABCs, the practice drills, of the way of Jesus can be challenging and they're not always immediately satisfying. Our practicing forgiveness uh, or generosity or faithfulness or, or peacemaking is, is tough uh, because they're not the sort of things we see celebrated in the world that we know very often. And so the, the plan between now and Advent, which is 98 days from today, in case you're wondering, <laughs> is to pay attention to those things together, which is every bit as much for me as for you. Right? And I want to do that because the basics uh, translate into beauty. The little things add up. And I was watching a, the, the Jays game yesterday, and this was a play that was made by uh, the other team, so I shouldn't even really like it. But uh, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hit the ball right up the middle of the diamond, and the second baseman for the Cleveland Guardians like dove and stopped the ball, and while he was facing the wrong direction, took the ball and threw it over his shoulder and landed it right in the glove and got the out at second base. It was a beautiful thing. It was an incredible play. Uh, and it, it wasn't, I don't think it was just dumb luck. It was because he'd been practicing the basics. The little things add up. They add up to beautiful things, whether that beautiful music, the beautiful painting, the, the, the beautiful sports play, whatever it is. And I want to live beautiful lives and be an ever more beautiful community because that's what we're made for. Right? Which is why I want to start the series in Matthew with this little passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. And there's kind of a technical reason for this. See, Paul's letters predate uh, the Gospels. Um, so they tell us something about the communities that were forming around the person and work of Jesus, his way and, and will and way in the world, and, and kind of um, the, the world into which the Gospel writers brought their storytelling gifts, which was never just about telling about the life and times of Jesus. It's about forming a community around Jesus in the way of Jesus. And I think Paul's letters 
give us some insight into what was going on from the get-go in the church. Right? They get us back to the basics, back to kind of ground zero almost. But more than technical things, I, I think this is just an astonishingly beautiful passage. Uh, it gets at who we are uh, and whose we are. It gets at the heart of what we're made for, what it looks like to live the abundant life that Jesus called us and claimed us for. You know, which I admit is not what it sounds like at first, right? Paul says, I beg you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. <laughs> which doesn't exactly sound like abundant life, does it? It sounds kind of, kind of morbid, really. I mean, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? I, I assume it's been a while since anyone here sacrificed something on an altar. Uh, so maybe this image doesn't quite land for us the way it did for those first people who heard it. Uh, the folks who, whose world was oriented around sacrificial systems, whether Jews or Gentiles, right? Everybody participated in systems that involved making sacrifices to God or, or the gods. Right? So, so something, or sometimes that was about appeasing a particular deity, like making sure we're in, good, good, uh, in the good books. Sometimes it was about uh, courting their favor, you know, for a good crop or a one battle, uh, but for Jews like Paul, I think it was much more about a relational reality. It was one of the practices that oriented the people to the love and faithfulness and mercy of God. To know the promise that, that Yahweh was their God and they were God's people. Right? And consistently when Israel is instructed to make particular kinds of sacrifices, sometimes for forgiveness, but as, just as often out of loving worship, uh, they were expected to bring the best that they could. Right? You, you don't show up to the altar with the leftover grain. You don't show up with that runty and cross-eyed goat that you were going to get rid of anyways. You bring the first fruits, the best grains. You bring an animal without spot or blemish, something of great value. And that was not to satisfy God's kind of need for things, but it was an act of devotion. Right? It reminded people that God is worth it, is worth our best. They bring their best to God because God has sold out for them. Right? It's a way of mirroring and responding to God's faithfulness, God's generosity, God's compassion and promises. And that, or something like it, I think is what Paul is getting at when he tells us to bring our lives, bring our bodies as living sacrifices. And there, there is a kind of death involved, no doubt. Right? Paul is echoing Jesus' own call to, to take up his cross or his foreshadowing what, the great martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I'm sure Bonhoeffer was a riot at parties. <laughs> but it, it's true. We, we're invited to come and die. Come and die to the things that are destroying us. Come and die to life on the world's terms. Come and die to anything less than we're made for. Come and die to uh, anything other than what God wants for us. Anyone who wants to save their life will lose it. Anyone who clings to themselves will lose everything. Everyone who uh, gives their life for the sake of heaven's kingdom, who clings to God, will have more life than they know what to do with. Life and life abundant. Now, I think Paul is insisting, I think Paul is begging us to know, not just intellectually, but with our whole selves, with everything we are, with our bodies, <laughs> that only God is worthy of our lives. Your life is infinitely valuable so inexpressibly precious that only the maker of heaven and earth is truly worthy of it. And for the first Roman church, Paul is ex expressing something dangerous, 
I mean, he's saying effectively, like, the emperor isn't worth your life. The ways of the empire, the Roman way of things, isn't worth your life. Which is no small thing. At various times in Christian history, Christians have been thought of as traitors, as atheists. Sometimes they were persecuted for that, for neglecting the Roman gods, for refusing to make sacrifices to the emperors, for upending Roman hierarchy, the arrangements that kept everything in a good Roman way. Right, for refusing to participate in Rome's vision of itself, refusing things like military service and uh, political power. They wouldn't participate in the emperor's vision and idea of what a kingdom should be. Because the emperor wasn't worth it. The only one worth it, worth their lives, was the one who'd given his life for them. The only one worthy of their lives was the one who made them and knew them and loved them beyond measure, who called and claimed them. The empire wasn't worth it. Only heaven's kingdom was worth it giving everything for. Only the way of love and justice and righteousness is worthy of our lives, is worth dying for. And it would be hard to overstate what a radical shift this would have been for that first Roman community, but I don't think it's all that much different now. I mean, some of us grew up getting participation trophies and being told how wonderful we are and that we could do anything we wanted, <laughs> which sounds nice until it's just a burden. So the idea that we are divinely worthy may not be as much of a shock to us, but I don't really think it's much different than it was 2,000 years ago. I think if Paul were standing here today, he'd be every bit as insistent that the way of the world is not worthy of our lives, that the current order of things is not worthy of us. That late-stage capitalism is not worthy of us. That the greed that has us pinned down and imagining that there really is nothing else we can do except the world, let the world burn around us so we might as well get everything we can while there's still time is not worthy of us. The bland, boring notion that we belong to ourselves, that what really matters is the trinity of my wants and feelings and needs <laughs> isn't worthy of us. You know, the, the, the facts of life tell us that we can't really handle something eternally valuable. We all run out of steam at some point, right? We're all going to die. And so the manic fear of death that undergirds so much of what so many people do is not worthy of us. What Paul is saying is that only God is worthy of us. Only the one who has given everything for us is worthy of everything from us. Only the one who's given everything for us is worthy of everything from us, which requires a radical shift. It's not what we've been taught. Most days, it's not even what we believe, let's be honest. I mean, it requires, as Paul says, a, a transformation of our minds. It requires a, a new way of thinking that orients us, heart, soul, mind, and strength to the will and way of God in Christ. The way of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And that requires two things. First, it requires grace. Grace and grace and more grace. Now, if we'll walk in the way of Jesus, we have to know at some point, or if you're anything like me, several times a day, we're going to fall on our faces. <laughs> you're going to boot the ground ball. You're going to shank the chip. You're going to clank that free throw. You're going to drop a stitch. You're going to stumble over a C major scale, whatever the thing. Paul says very early in his letter that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that is not a threat, it's a promise. <laughs> it's not self-flagellation, it's just realism. And so we begin with grace, God's grace over all, and then grace for ourselves, and grace for each other. 
And Paul's instruction here is not born of condemnation, but he says, out of the grace given to me. Right? His authority doesn't rest in his perfection. His authority rests in his experiences of God's grace for him and his deep need. Right? Life in the way of Jesus is not about making ourselves worthy. It's about receiving the fact of our worthiness and living from there. It's about recognizing that Jesus has already given everything for us before we ever thought to give anything for him. It's about letting our lives be rooted and grounded in God's love so that we produce fruit worthy of the worthiness in which we're made. So first, we need grace. And second, we need discernment. Kind of a clunky old word. But we need discernment. You know, the transformation of our minds isn't mostly about having a better sense of self, though it is that. It's mostly about discerning God's will in and for our lives. So it's good and acceptable and perfect, Paul says, which is not moral perfection. We don't have that in us. It's about living whole and healthy and healed lives in and for this world that God so loves. Right? It's about bearing witness with our lives, with everything we've got, more and more to the grace and love in which we're made. And one challenge of discernment is that it takes time and space and attention, which are things that are sorely lacking in our world that our world is not much interested in. The patterns of the world these days, as far as I can tell, are increasingly cramped and rushed and distracted. In countless ways, we're encouraged to believe that we are, are not doing enough, right? Whether in work or retirement or, or <laughs> that side project you've been meaning to do for years or in school or... <laughs> I see you laughing at each other. <laughs> right? We, we, have, we all have this kind of nagging, or many people anyways, have this nagging feeling that we should be doing more, we could be doing more, amounting to more, accomplishing more. And it's so overwhelming that a whole lot of people just choose distraction instead. North American adults watch up to, upwards of four hours of TV a day, which doesn't include doom scrolling, it doesn't include playing mindless games, it doesn't include dopamine chasing on social media. Lots of us are unable to sit for more than a few minutes without grabbing our phones. Next time you're in a social situation, pay attention to how quickly someone picks up their phone and gets immersed in anything other than the people who are sitting in front of them. It's a vicious cycle. We're, we're made to feel like we should always be doing more, and then we're distracted to the point of futility, and then we feel terrible about all the things we didn't do. Right? And this may not be you, and it may not be quite as bad as all that, but I bet it sounds kind of familiar because it's a pattern that we're easily conformed to and there are, there are industries designed to encourage it and they're powerful and they're pervasive and most of all, they're sneaky. Most of the time, we don't even re recognize the ways that we're manipulated into thinking about ourselves and doing things in particular ways that are contrary to the stuff that we're made for, the life that's truly life, which is why discernment is so important. Why, if we want to live the life that we're made for, we need time and space and attention for the things that matter most. Things like relationships and creativity, beauty and rest. Paul says in the letter to the Philippians, whatever's good, whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's uh, pure, whatever's beautiful, whatever's praiseworthy, think about those things. Right? That's why we pray and read scripture and worship, not to check off uh, spiritual boxes on our already bloated to-do lists, but to become people who give time and space and attention to God. 
and what matters, not for this moment only, but for eternity, trusting that God's will is good and very good for us. It's to protect us from settling for anything else, anything less. I think it's, I think it's easy to kind of roll our eyes or, or, or you know, gently mock communities, old order communities like the Amish. <laughs> and I'm not going to suggest that we necessarily need to do what they do and, uh, you know, or that they have it all figured out. They're every bit as much sinners as we are. But one thing we could learn from the Amish is the art of discernment. That, that, that art of practices that, that pay attention to God and then shape our lives around that attention. A group of Christians went on a bus tour to a, a community uh, that was populated by an old order Amish uh, community. And at one point the bus stopped and a, a local man got on and was invited to come and talk to this group about, about kind of Amish ways of life, what, the, what, what it's like. And uh, somebody asked at one point, what's the difference between Amish people and like other Christians? The man thought for a second and he said, uh, how many of you have a TV in your home? All, all the hands went up. How many of you think that your kids would be better off with less TV? Most of the hands went up. How many of you, knowing that, are going to go home and get rid of your TV? And no hands went up. But that's the difference. And that may seem kind of extreme. <laughs> but I think it's something like what Paul is calling us to in this passage. right? To take the time and space and attention to pay attention to the ways that we are formed in ways that are deforming. Right? There's only intentional formation and unintentional formation. Pay attention and then choose consciously, prayerfully, rebelliously, a more beautiful way, which is what we're made for. And this isn't like another thing to do. <laughs> in fact, if we do this, we'll probably do less. We'll have a clearer sense of ourselves. And we'll recognize our freedom in Christ, right? We are not slaves. We don't have to do things all the time. We don't, we are, our value is not predicated on our productivity. And what will ultimately happen is we'll end up being more and more the people we're made to be instead of something else. And Paul finishes by telling us that we're to do what we're made to do, right? Delight in who God made you to be. I love that in the end, generosity is every bit as important as teaching. That, that, that being cheerful is every bit as important as prophecy when it comes to the Christian community. Like as if it might be just enough for us to find our joy in the Lord and then live from that joy. I think it's worth a shot. God give us grace and guts. Amen. Amen.